Welcome back to another episode of the Jack of All Trades podcast. And on today's show, we are discussing data-driven practices within student-athlete development and the student services industry overall with distinguished guests, Dr. Christina Navarro, Dr. Lisa Rubin, and Dr. Marissa Nichols. Some of the talking points that we discuss are modern-day trends of data-driven practices within student services, how to successfully assess and evaluate programming in research studies for your own respective student-athlete development program, and lastly, how to apply the results from these studies to illustrate the overall effectiveness of your program when speaking with coaches, donors, and other stakeholders that involved in your program. Now, without further ado, let's get to the show. To another episode of the Jack of All Trades podcast. Today, I'm fortunate to be able to speak with Lisa Rubin, Marissa Nichols, and Christina Navarro in regards to data-driven practices within student-athlete development. Lisa is a assistant professor at Kansas State. Marissa Nichols is the director of leadership and career development at Boston University. And Christina Navarro is the senior associate AD for student athlete development and strategic partnerships at Rutgers University. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, Josh, Thank for having us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So starting off um, with Lisa, do you mind just telling us more about what your job duties and responsibilities entail on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So as a faculty member at Kansas, um, I have three responsibilities, teaching, research, and service. And teaching includes advising. So I have the opportunity to advise graduate students who are pursuing degrees in college student development and academic advising, the future of student-athlete services. So I really enjoy that. I also have the opportunity to research in the area of student-athlete services. And then I do service, which includes involvement in organizations like N4A, as well as uh, serving on committees on campus, such as our Intercollegiate Athletic Council. Awesome. And then what about you, Marissa? So my, my role at Boston University within the athletic department is to create, implement, and measure the success of our student-athlete development portfolio. And uh, at Boston University, one of a couple of our main focus points are on leadership development, career development, and personal development. And so um, I have the great fortune of being able to build out a program from scratch over the last two years, and I use my data-driven lens to inform the curriculum, best practices, and also look at key metrics of success and show return on investment in this work. I also really enjoy being involved at the national level, um, taking Lisa and Christina's lead there and just being able to present and serve on committees and be a part of different NCAA leadership development uh, programs and opportunities. Fantastic. And Christina has been a guest on the show before, but if you wouldn't mind, Christina, can you just tell us more about what your job duties and responsibilities entail? 
Sure. So uh, currently I oversee our Office of Leadership Development and Strategic Partnerships, which has six main areas. Uh, first one, personal enhancement. So you might think about that as mental health and well-being, um, different aspects of the freshman transition. Student Advisory Committee, community engagement programming or community service. Uh, leadership development, career development, and then most recently, our alumni engagement and letter winners organization. Phenomenal. So you guys are all pretty prominent on the national level, and one of the things that's also going on right now, and it's a common trend within athletics, is professionals in the administrative side are starting to get PhDs. Um, you guys all have your PhDs, so what do you guys think the benefits of pursuing a PhD are? I, guess I can start. Yeah, go ahead, Lisa. Yes, sorry. Um, one of the things I think as a benefit is that you learn something that you're passionate about, and all of us have pursued education that connects us, you know, maybe beyond uh, just like one thing, like just working in athletics, we also understand how uh, colleges work. And I think that's really important for doing a good job and working with people across campus. Also, gaining skills. The research skills are helpful because uh, as an administrator, you're going to be using those to evaluate and assess programs. And I know Christina and Marissa are both experts in that. We'll talk about that later in the show. And lastly, that kind of networking, that cohort that you create with your colleagues in classrooms, that later on in life you might be working with some of the people you took classes with or calling them for advice. And I think that's an incredibly valuable aspect of pursuing a doctorate. I would add uh, just the, the process of thinking about things from both a critical and a practitioner boots on the ground approach. I think that as this area has developed, it's really a nexus point between intercollegiate athletics and the academic institution. And the more you can have someone who understands and resonates in the space of the professors and deans and just understand some of that critical lens that the campus might take to different problems or programming. Also, the ability to show kind of your return on investment in the athletics department from a critical assessment lens. I think the PhD or the terminal degree just gives you that extra skill set and training to be able to accomplish um, you know, multiple avenues of both being a scholar and a practitioner. Absolutely. I don't really have too much to add. I think they hit on it all. And I, I think just the differentiator as well, um, thinking about even though it's becoming more of a trend, there's still not a lot of administrators that have their PhD um, in this space. And just the ability to work to establish yourself as an expert in a particular area that you love, going back to Lisa's point of um, the knowledge. And so I think that that's a really exciting opportunity and just gives you a different way to view the world and, and different lens to use in your work. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it really gives you that concentrated topic of focus. And one of the things that you guys all do very, very well and have presented at the national level at the N4A national convention is on this topic of data-driven practices, um, more specifically within student-athlete development. So starting back, uh, can you guys give the listeners a backstory on what brought you guys together 
um, to collaborate on the various projects you've been a part of. Yes, starting with Lisa again and then. All right, well, um, I've been a big fan of Christina's work for a long time. Uh, my students read a lot of her work on career development and you know, getting the opportunity to meet her, I believe I watched her present at ASH several years ago and kind of went up and met her and kind of believe, you know, she's just one cool person like us, like, we're, you know, <laughs> someone I could talk to and share ideas. And she has so many great ideas. So I was trying to find ways to work with Christina, too. And uh, to be honest, Marissa was a student athlete at UNLV when I worked there uh, in as an athletic advisor and also was kind of doing a life skills program. And I met her because she was interested in working on a resume with me. And ever since I met Marissa, she left a strong impression. And as she's grown into an outstanding professional and scholar practitioner, of course, I wanted to work with her, too, because she's the rising star in our profession. So Marissa actually was the person who created the idea to present on this uh, at N4A and invited us to join her. And so we are all just benefiting from her greatness, I think. <laughs> that was very kind. Um, but I, Jack, it's okay, I'll jump in. I, just on that same note, um, tremendous admiration and respect for Christina from afar and was so grateful to have met her and built a relationship with her and wanted to take her lead in how she was measuring and developing programs. Um, and I've learned so much from her. And then Lisa has always been an amazing mentor and someone I admire professionally as well for all of her impact and everything she's involved in. So um, really just kind of the synergy of, you know, wanting to, I think, bring us all together. And um, this is certainly an area that needs to develop further and that we're, I think we're all very passionate and excited about. In fact, after this talk, I'm going to pitch um, how we develop our 2019-2020 N4A webinar because we'd like to also make that, a, a, you know, another component of what we do in educating others on how to um, better assess and understand success in this area. And I'll chime in just uh, thankful for these two to be in my life to keep me sane and to keep me organized. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's Kind of for me, starting in the faculty ranks and moving into a tenured position, and you really rely on people who you can work at a constant pace with or a consistent pace with. And so, Dr. Rubin, I really was appreciative when she reached out after some of those early AERA and ASH higher ed conferences, and we were able to kind of find some mutual areas of connection to study and research. And, you know, as I've taken on more administrative responsibility. I have really looked to her as my guiding point now on research and we've been able to publish a book together now that comes out Friday and you know she's somebody that's very good about keeping you on task and organized and I, I just appreciate that because the administrative world can get pretty nuts at times so that um, scholarly lens is something that as your your day job becomes further from it it's really refreshing to be able to come back and have those conversations about, you know, the why behind what you're doing and the assessment pieces and how you can make sure that you're actually having an impact. And then uh, I met Dr. Nichols through Lisa um, as a former student at UNLV, and I just was so impressed when we first sat down, I think, at dinner and just is so inquisitive and had so many 
exciting questions and just a real thrive for life in the profession. And so for me, it was just two people that I really wanted to be affiliated with and engage with. And it's led to a great friendship over the last, I'd say, five years. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you guys have, besides that, you guys have also done other works together. And I know that this branch is increasing. So as Marissa mentioned, she's going to pitch a webinar for this topic for this upcoming year. And I know, Lisa, you were recently appointed to serve as the division director for educational services and initiatives within N4A. What does this branch of N4A aim to accomplish, and how can others get involved? Thanks for that question. Um, what's really cool about this division is that we oversee two committees, the Research Committee and the Virtual Education Committee. The Virtual Education Committee is brand new. It launched in June at the conference this year in 2019. And this committee is overseeing the professional development initiatives that are away from conferences, essentially. So the Resource Center, which is a repository for information, is kind of clunky right now. And so this group is revamping it, working with all of the committee chairs and posting things like award winner presentations research award winner papers, and, um, you know, if you didn't go to the conference, there's still a place to get, like, PowerPoints and handouts from conference presentations as well. And this group is also in charge of the webinar series for N4A and also kind of looking to other sorts of creative online learning for members of the organization. The research committee has also done a lot of cool things, and both Christina and Marissa have been involved in that over several years. That committee is doing research spotlights with people in the profession that are doing great work, and a lot of them are practitioners and don't have doctorates, and we love that. We want people to do research with the knowledge and expertise they have in the field, and then we're also promoting uh, scholarship in the area, teaching basic research skills to our members, and those sort of things. So what we're trying to accomplish is to expand the talent and knowledge among our members and provide access to scholarly resources for the membership as well as other types of professional development for them without having to charge them more and make them fly somewhere. So that's kind of the main goals of this division. Awesome. And then for others to get involved, can they just email you? or? That's a great question. Um, all of the committee chairs' contact information is on N4A's website. There's a list uh, like a committee information link on the main page. And any person that's a member can just email a chair and be asked or asked to be joined onto the listserv or just join the committee. And then they will then be invited to like the monthly committee calls and any information sent out in between those, as well as be able to jump in at a conference or in the project during the year. And another way is, you know, to go to at the annual conference there's going to be committee meetings and they can come and kind of check out what a meeting is like and see if they want to join that committee as well. So people in N4A can be involved in multiple committees. They don't have to just stay in one box. And we encourage people, of course, to do things outside of their comfort zone. So if you're a learning specialist, of course, you might join learning concerns and enhancement committee, but you also may want to do research. So you can join the research committee too. Yeah, and I really like the fact that N4A as a whole is trying to bring the services that might not be provided to those um, that don't have the funds to travel 
to those individuals through the internet. It's a great concept and um, I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys do. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed for um, Marissa is on your LinkedIn and then also on, on your Twitter a little bit, you have mentioned that um, one of the things that you are striving to do is um, be on a quest to systemize how practitioners develop people to optimize per performance and overall well-being. Why is this um, task so important to you and, and what you do? Yeah, I appreciate that question, too. It's certainly something that keeps me up at night in, in a great way. I think the way I can best explain it through a quick story is, you know, as a student athlete, you know, knowing that I reached a really high level of performance athletically, um, I believe a lot of that experience had to do with how our head coach was developing us as people. And so when I was working on my research um, through my doctorate program, I was very curious, like, what goes into being a high-performing student-athlete? Um, what are the traits and skills of student-athletes who are experiencing a high level of success and high-level potential um, in their sport, in the classroom, and just the overall student-athlete experience? And so one of the things that I am really passionate, excited, and continue to explore is this idea of how can we um, learn where students are at in their development based on skills that we know tie back to high performance and then figure out where they are on those metrics and then develop them accordingly. And so one of the things I've proposed to BU and recently earned some seed funding for was developing this metric um, to look at all these different domains of development and then be able to provide an individualized script for that student athlete, um, incorporating the entire campus community and everything they're doing on their team so they can develop in those ways. And then let's see and measure, does that connect back to increases in performance? And I recognize that this is a very large, daunting task, and I think it's probably something I'll work on throughout my entire career, but certainly um, something I think about a lot also through professionalizing our field of student-athlete development, if we can show that we know this work in developing students and as people like, can connect actually back to the outcomes that they're continually measured on as student-athletes, I think what that can potentially do for coaches and administrators um, and, and our field can be meaningful. So that is a little bit about um, my mentality there, and I hope to really continue to see those projects through. Yeah, that's so awesome. And, I, and personally, I mean, I think that the numbers, especially as coaches and how stats are even starting to improve even more in, in the coaching profession, um, if they really notice these numbers, then they will be more bought in as a whole. And I think that's one of the common trends within the student services industry in regards to data-driven practices. But how else has data-driven practices um, developed over the years? And, I, and I'll ask Christina first when she she mentioned the practitioner side of things. That's what she's really interested in. So, Sure. So I would say data-driven practices really kind of come to the forefront now in the last oh, five years with the profession really increasing over the last 10. I think there's just a need from an 
a senior associate and executive staff level to understand and demonstrate the impact that programs are having in ways such as postgraduate outcomes or community engagement, um, ways that you see the NESI service, the survey on campus, which is a national student engagement survey across all departments on a college campus. And so you know, as conversations continue and you are demonstrating that you're really putting great uh, work out there and you're becoming a, a larger function of the campus and extensions of campus partnerships, I think data-driven practices have come to the forefront of what needs to happen in student-athlete development. And then Marissa and Lisa, you guys can chime in on this question as well. I guess I, I think, I don't know if I'd call myself newer to the field. I, I you know, was a graduate assistant at UNLV, um, highly immersed in this work and again, admiring um, Christina's work in this area from afar during that time and then really took a strong stance to see how that could look at BU. And I, I think I'm learning what the history has been and it's still something that's developing. I think Christina has really paved the way for that for us. Um, and then of course, Lisa too, with all of her work on, on using research to inform practice um, for academic advisors and academic support staff. So I think it's still really up and coming. Um, and we, I know all three of us wanna to continue to develop that further. I would say I think it's becoming just a crucial skill set for uh, you know future administrators as they come into this profession to have an awareness of. Uh, we see a lot of people coming into the profession now from higher ed programs even at the master's level or student affairs programs at the master's level versus a sport administration or sport management program. Uh, so I think just the, the general need and focus is increasing. Also, if I could add one more thing, I think what we find too is athletic directors are still defining for themselves like what success is and what you know key metrics are in this area. And a lot of times we as professionals are bringing that level of expertise, but it's, it's a discussion still. It's not something that's set and that we know similar to like a compliance department or um, academic unit and kind of what their key metrics are. So this can make it challenging at times. Um, but also exciting to see, like, what can we set as standards to help shape the industry in that way? I couldn't agree more. And, you know, it's, it's important because athletic departments, they have a mission statement, and then they also have a vision statement most of the time, and they have verbiage in there, but there's no real data to back it up unless practitioners such as ourselves can really provide that data so that it really ties into what you know the life path of success really means how do we really um, hone in on that and set the standard from a numbers perspective and I know that your guys presentation not this past N4A but the year previously was phenomenal and it really got me thinking on how should I conduct research within my own program at Utah Valley to um, improve the programs. And it's been phenomenal just having private conversations with Marissa and Christina about this topic, but why should practitioners conduct research to improve their programs? I'd love to, to answer this. 
Um, first thing is kind of like Marissa mentioned with athletic directors trying to figure out what success is. A lot of times people assume success without doing any evaluation of what they've accomplished. You know, if they implemented a program or a leadership academy or brought in a speaker and it looked like a lot of people showed up, maybe that's success. But, but what, did, what did we measure? And so I think finding a way to measure outcomes from some, something we do to see does it really work and is it impacting our students is really important. Also, practitioners are doing the work. And to me, there are a lot of people out there looking to publish something about athletics or athletes or um, the athletic staff, and they're not interacting with those students or those people. And then, you know, is it really truth? So I think it's really important that practitioners have these skills to conduct research and then, you know, as you said, improve their programs. But if they can share it in a published format, then they can help other programs, especially programs that may not have the resources to conduct an internal review or a needs assessment. They can look for ideas given to them by their peers at other institutions. And my last plug is, you know, we have provided a lot of kind of research basics resources through N4A. So we have some video clips that are in the resource center and they're on YouTube that N4A members can watch just to learn how to get started. And there's a whole support system through the research committee to help people get started if they want to do anything, even if it's internal, they don't want to share it outside of their unit or outside of their department. We want to get people comfortable thinking about research as fun and not tedious or like writing a paper that they don't want to write. And that is, you know, one of the main things that I think is important to really think of because when people think of research, they most of the time think of it as something that could be boring, but this is actually fun and, and engaging. So, Marissa and Christina, um, how else do you guys think practitioners should conduct research at their institutions? I can jump in and I think that you can do things in stages, you know, developing a process of how you continue to analyze even from like a learning outcomes perspective. So a lot of our colleagues have started to do like a freshman transition program. Um, whether it's credit bearing or not, you can identify what learning outcomes would be for that specific uh, occasion in different courses or different workshops. But what are you hoping that student athletes leave understanding and knowing? Uh, that's as easy as creating kind of a pre and post survey or even an exit survey uh, that you can do very easily through Qualtrics or survey, uh, survey Monkey. So just little steps, and those are all pieces of, uh, whether we realize it or not, uh, gathering and collecting data. So it doesn't have to be a huge ordeal off the bat. It can be kind of a scaffold process. Absolutely. And one of the things that's been really key for us is I've been able to leverage some of our really great campus partners to help with that process. So I partner with um, a master's program on campus who has students who are tasked with doing a consulting project. Um, and so we work together. They help me analyze the data we've collected and, and look at you know what we're seeing and what we can report out on. And so it, it doesn't have to be done in isolation. I know there's faculty members on campus too that have strong research interest and 
student athlete success or experience, and that can be a great partnership as well as, as faculty are looking to do research. Um, you know, how can they work, you know, the practitioner and the researcher or the faculty member work to get in that area. Um, and then we've also used it to inform our programming, which I think is a best case scenario. So we did a, um, a control group and, and looked at, you know, if we launched this, as Christina mentioned, the first year class of over eight weeks had one credit um, versus doing the traditional nighttime orientation structure. So we had two groups and we looked at any shifts in a mindset um, was our framework and saw that there was a difference in how students saw themselves in terms of their personality before and after the one credit course as opposed to the traditional nighttime sessions um, that had certainly a different structure than a class format, which we know is the best practice. So that gave me more information to be able to come back and say, hey, we know that this was more effective um, and this is some of the things that we saw. Yeah, just the numbers tell the story and now just delving into the presentation that you guys did a, a few years back, um, you guys mentioned in that presentation that there are steps that need to be taken in order to assess and evaluate programming in a successful manner. Uh, what are these um, steps and how should others implement these when conducting a research study? I can start in the sense of thinking about, I think the first thing you want to ask yourself is do you want to have publishable data? And what is the purpose of what you're doing? Are you really utilizing it to demonstrate success of programs just internally? Or are you using this as a wider scope where you want to publish and share it and make a contribution to the literature base? Um, and so the, the key kind of there is, are you going to go through an IRB process or an institutional review board? Every college campus has one of those and it's basically making sure they're managing the risk to potential parties. So in this case, student athletes or administrators or people that you would have as your subjects. And so I think that would be a, a good first step. And then maybe I'll let Lisa and um, Marissa chime in on next best step. I know Marissa's doing this right now, so I'm gonna defer to her. <laughs> I, I think just building off of Christina's thoughts, like my answer to this too is like what the purpose and intent was. And so sometimes I looked at it through a research lens where I think about like Christina said, wow, like I would really love to be able to you know, use this data to help inform practice more on a larger scale. Um, and then other times, maybe from what you could argue that more of a practitioner lens of like, how can I evaluate and assess what we're doing here so that um, I can show results, you know, more across our department and be able to report out on these things and use that to inform our decisions more on a micro level. So not really just kind of reiterating what Christina said there, not, not too much um, new, but I think that kind of knowing the difference and knowing what's important and also knowing you can't tackle it all. So what are your priorities? What would be most helpful? I think one of the most important things that's been helpful in my process is at the beginning of the year, setting out like what is success this year and looking at um, all the different key areas and then having an actual process for how I'm going to go about it and being strategic about that process. So for example, in our Leadership Academy application, there's a series of questions in there embedded that are actually we're collecting information on so that we can use that um, to compare against our post 
um, survey at the end of the um, Leadership Academy time. So also just being really thoughtful and mindful, not overtaxing with questions. And Christina really taught me a lot about that of like, you know, what do you really need to know? And then you set your programs up accordingly versus what we tend to do in our field is like, we'll do all these programs because it seems like a really great option and a lot of schools are doing it, but then, and then we'll figure out what to assess. And so instead of approaching it through the lens of like, well, what do I really want to know and do and what skill sets we want our students to have, where do we want them to be? And then that's how we build out our programmatic structure. I would say it's really kind of just trying to identify what you're not going to get survey fatigue on or tune people out to the programming that you're trying to do. Uh, so kind of finding that balance. And for us, like for example, we utilize our staff group and say, kind of prep them saying, this is, you're going to be a pilot group for this. And here's what the expectation is of being a pilot uh, member of this group. And uh, if you can offer some incentives to them, that's, applicable with NCAA regulations and also the IRB that can help as well. Um, or, you know, just giving them certain perks, like you, uh, under, helping them understand that they can kind of change the future ways of support for student athletes. So a lot of them who are invested in staff, that's kind of the reason that they're involved anyway. So you can kind of pitch it to them in that direction and then you don't have that issue of survey fatigue or research fatigue. I think that's key. So essentially what you guys are saying is you need to know the why of why you want to conduct the research study in the first place before moving forward on anything else, correct? Yes, I believe so, yes. So another thing that you guys mentioned during the presentation that you guys did was that there are two types of assessments, one being quantitative and the other being qualitative. Um, how do these differ for those that might not be as familiar with the research side of being a practitioner within this field? I'm happy to talk since I made them talk so much before. <laughs> um, so first, uh, quantitative studies or assessments or evaluations are looking at metrics that are usually in a numerical form. And that could be something as simple as how many people showed up to measuring some kind of effectiveness with a, an instrument, like a survey that, you know, has been vetted. Like it, there's a sport leadership behavior inventory survey, you know, that has statistical backing to it. And we know that this measures leadership development among athletes, for example. So you would have students fill it out, and then you'd run some statistics on it. So those are kind of different ways you can look at numbers. In terms of qualitative, this is really getting like a rich description of someone's experience, and you can look at that in different ways. Uh, something could be as simple as an observation. So you could observe students in study hall, and that could be with taking notes and observing behavior and forming what you see. That could be a qualitative analysis. You can also ask students in an interview to explain their experiences, say, in a program or after hearing a speaker on alcohol and discussing, you know, maybe how they felt when they were learning something and what they think after. And you can do that at different times. And so there's other ways to look at when you said two types of assessments, there's also formative and summative. 
an informative assessment, assessment it might be, you know, halfway through a leadership academy year, asking students to give some feedback on their experience and then kind of updating the curriculum in the middle of the semester or the middle of the year. A summative would be kind of like a teaching evaluation at the end of the semester, having students give feedback after the class is over. So there's a bunch of different ways to go about researching, assessing, and evaluating programs, but they're all important and useful. There are different, uh, you know, some people are very strongly uh, holding beliefs that one is better than the other, but I think you'll find, uh, based on the work that Christina and Marissa have done also, that they're both useful in different ways. And getting some feedback from students could be creative ideas to improve that you didn't think of, whereas a number may not tell you that. Yeah, so they, I guess all of them in a story, um, which is really key. And there are different types of frameworks and metrics that really go into the quantitative side of things. So some of the key measurements that, you know, need to be measured, what would you guys recommend others that are trying to get a quantitative study done? What are some of the things to definitely include in that study? One would be descriptive, you know, like who showed up, how many from which team, how many uh, from, you know, men's teams, women's teams, kind of, you know, maybe if they are participating in something, how many people were involved, those kind of things. A lot of it might be a coach, coach involvement and buy-in, too, which can be measured a little bit. Um, in terms of, you know, again, just depends on if there's instruments used, if you're having students on an evaluation at the end where they circle one through five and you can do statistics on numbers like that, you know, strongly agree to strongly disagree that they got something out of a, an experience that was provided. But, um, you know, really there's no one way to do it, I guess. Is, is It just sort of depends going back to what my colleague said earlier. What is it trying, what are you trying to find out? What are you measuring? So if it's a learning outcome, can you measure that? with a number and that's where you have to kind of design your assessment around where you're starting and seeing what can I actually find out based on what I'm trying to learn. You can also think about, you know, just quantifying different aspects. Like for example, here, uh, head football coach wants every junior and senior to have a resume and a LinkedIn account by the time they graduate. So that's basically having a goal at the beginning of the year and then working towards that goal and mobilizing services in that direction so that you can say 100% of your student-athletes in X sport have completed this task. And so that's kind of a lower-level way of thinking about it, but that's kind of in that descriptive category. Um, a lot of people think about community service and how do you track hours. So that can also be another measurement, kind of lower-level angle to look at things. If you get more into the upper level thinking about an assessment, so a learning outcome might be we want student athletes in their freshman year to understand how to engage with campus career services. Um, and then how do you demonstrate that? Like their awareness level of what exists on campus in a survey. And there's different ways you can, you can do that. So um, those are just some different examples. 
Yeah, and I think one thing I've tried to do a little bit more of in my work is looking at behavioral shifts as well. And so what if we know the outcome is for our students to be well-versed in having those difficult conversations and crucial conversations, and that's our framework, we can look at you know where they started at um, before they went through an um, intensive you know six-month leadership development training where it's focusing on some of these skills, like how many hard conversations are they having, what is their skill level, what is their coach's perspective of that, and then you know shaping your curriculum around that, and then also assessing at the end, you know, what did it look like? How are they doing now? Um, how has it helped them, you know, be a better teammate and communicator? Um, are they are they challenging themselves and having those conversations? Um, so you can, I think, be really creative and innovative too. And there's not always a set blueprint. Like, of course, we have our empirically validated instruments, but also, how can we get innovative about, you know, what we're looking at and any shifts in those um, specific behaviors? Yeah, I I think that all of those are extremely key, especially just from the practitioner side, um, you know, having that data so that if we do go to coaches and coaches want this to be a goal, we can say we met the mark or we didn't meet the mark and here's why, or they learned what they needed to learn and here's why. There's a lot of different things to really point out in these types of um, reports, but uh, what are some of the other best ways to implement the results of a study after conducting the research study? Well, one suggestion that I have is, you know, when we present at a conference, you're getting feedback on the research we conducted, so I might come in and have a whole bunch of ideas based on what I think, but then people share their experiences or, oh, I, now that I heard this is the result, here's what we do or here's what I would do. And then that helps kind of generate more ideas. And that's why you see a lot of people present their research before they publish it because people are kind of generating discussion around it with other practitioners and, and professionals and scholars, which then informs great ideas to implement new things or to edit you know, some of the things that we're already doing. So I think that getting input from others in the field, even if the study was internal uh, of what your own pro programs are, that there's a way to get information from people who have similar ideas and a lot of great expertise. So like using peer networks, I guess, is my whole point of all that blabber. <laughs> but I think that, you know, if I was going to do something, even just sharing with Marissa and Christina, I'm going to get some awesome ideas based on what I experienced that I didn't think of. One um, formal structure that um, I've learned about is through the University of Washington Center for Leadership and Athletics, and they conduct one-page research briefs. I think Lisa was maybe the one that taught me about this, and I submitted some of my work through that. And so it's a wonderful one-page, um, basically for practitioners to say, here are the results, and here's some of the questions you can ask yourself now that you know this and think about how you might implement this on your campus. So making it really palatable and, and meaningful for practitioners. I think I've had to learn that in harder ways, in really great ways, like when working with coaches. If I went to a coach and I said, coach, like, you know, so-and-so's um, resilience score has increased, you know, by 20%. 
he's going to look at me and probably not have much of a reaction. But if I say, Coach, here's what we're seeing in, in, in terms of some scores, how is that translating for you on the court? You know, are you seeing him bounce back from failures a little quicker? Because that's kind of what we're seeing in our work in the Leadership Academy. So being able to make it really palatable, um, and that's a coach's example, but just even from a practitioner standpoint um, and how we can integrate, like, what we find into our processes and systems overall. We send out those research briefs once a month uh, through the NCORI listserv. So Washington Center for Leadership and Athletics has partnered with us, and they do like to share work with people in the field, which is awesome. Is that something that they can? Is that something that they can get for free? Like people within NCORI can just go on the NCORI's website and look it up, or is there a membership fee? Or no the University of Washington. Um, so they're available both. Uh, in Washington's website for Center for Leadership and Athletics has all of the briefs currently uh, that they've collected and organized. And then we on the N4A listserv send out a monthly one just highlighting a topic we think would be most interesting to the membership. And that's kind of curated by the center in Washington. Awesome. And then Christina, I, I I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. What what were you gonna chime in on that one? <laughs> I was just gonna kind of echo what they had already said. I think there's just so many resources now where people can be plugged in and to different. I'll just add like NASPA Student Athlete uh, Knowledge Community is another place where I've kind of found a home uh, in the student affairs space. And there's a lot of information and educational plan samples with them. Uh, so that's just another resource out there for collaboration. These are all awesome resources. So we've been going pretty macro. I'm going to um, ask a question that goes pretty micro through different types of scenarios. So one of them, since Marissa and Christina have both done this, when you guys are evaluating your guys' program and you guys are creating a research study based off of the results and then future trends of what you guys want to accomplish, how do you guys summarize that data to provide to ex external operations as well as donors to really receive more funding to create a better experience for the student athletes you guys work with? Christina, do you want to start? Sure. I would. I would say that's been a major trend in the profession of working with and intentionally with our development offices, both at the Division three level, and they're more of the campus ad, uh, advancement group. And then also here now at Rutgers, and it's a large Power 5 school here, athletic development people to just help tell the story of student-athletes and uh, really help from a partnership angle of increasing awareness, but also philanthropic giving and corporate support. Uh, because we're kind of the front line of telling the story of the student-athlete, both during their time in college and then life after sport. And then also from the corporate angle, a lot of individual organizations want to hire student-athletes. And so you're putting a price tag on that from, from the aspect of they're paying for access to career fairs on campus and access to get in front of business school students or medical school students, uh, kind of taking that model and adapting it to what you provide because it's 
it's definitely a valuable uh, entity within the athletics department, but also within the higher education institution. And so just being critically focused and uh, strategically focused on how you can be a revenue generator for the department uh, also just enhances the value you bring to the table. Yeah, I knew it'd be great to have Christina lead with that because I think what she's doing at Rutgers is really on you know the forefront and cutting edge of how you work with development and, and raising money for this area. Um, I would maybe just add, I'm always thinking about our, even small things like our collateral and how we're putting these stories and, and success metrics into reports that are meaningful for our athletic director, our higher education administrators, and so forth. And any chance I get it, any opportunity, I think, to get in front of people, to present what you're doing, um, and think about your audience, I, I, you know, presenting to the board of trustees, providing reports, getting in front of donors, I think, even if that's not a requirement of, of, of the student athlete development practitioner at your particular institution, I think any chance to, to be the one helping share that story, as Christina said, is um, extremely valuable. And just thinking about how you're packaging it um, for the donors and, and for those high-level constituents. I think that is really key, and I think that's, you know, the main reason why I've got in so involved with data at my respective institution is just because it helps paint that story. And uh, another um, scenario is, let's say somebody is in year one of building their student-athlete development program, and they want to see what to improve on for year two. How would you guys paint that story? Marissa is best equipped to answer this. Oh, admittedly, my I wasn't being mindful, and I was actually still thinking about our last question. <laughs> and I was, I wanted to add to just really quick. I think couching your results in the context of what's important to your AD and and your department. If 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 alumni relations are critically important, then how are your success metrics and what you're doing aligning with that, so that you're packaging it within the story of how we're moving as an institution. So I think alignment is so key too in how you're reporting out. Um, and so I digress. And Jack, can you please repeat what you said about first and second year programs? Yeah, of, of course. So if somebody is in year one of their program and they want to figure out how to Im improve it for year two, how would you go about painting that story to make sure that the needs are met of the student athletes? Hmm. Well, hopefully there's some reporting structures that were set up so that you have some evaluations you can use to assess what the students gain, what the coach is reporting. And if you don't have that, at least some focus groups and opportunities to sit with your executive board of SAC and other um, engaged student athletes on what the needs are. And I think that step of what happens in year two can't happen until you really have an understanding of what you did programmatically that was successful, um, what worked well, what could have been better, you know, what outcomes you did um, achieve and what, what areas you may not have um, gained as much stride as you would have liked um, to really position yourself. And then I think it would be a mistake to just continue to assume that your plan as a practitioner is the plan we should move forward with. I think that continual engagement, sitting with coaches, sitting with your 
um, senior administration and understanding what success is for the next year and then how I can really enhance what I'm doing. We don't always have to roll out brand new things every year. It could be a matter of how can I really enhance, you know, we're going into year two of a completely in-house leadership academy. Like how can I, how can we go even deeper here? And so that's an example for us. Last year, completely in-house structure, we built out our entire, entire curriculum model now it's a matter of, gosh, how can we make this even better by making sure the coaches know what checkpoints our students have along the way and um, making sure that this becomes like our core competencies are more visible and making sure that we're doing 360s with our captains this year. So just little enhancements too can, can be a, a great part of the success as well. I would just echo, I think, yeah, having a strategic plan and strategic priorities, you can't do everything the first year. So thinking about what you're going to try to accomplish in year one, year two, and year three, but then also showing the progress and kind of mm -hmm. building from that foundation in the first year. I would agree with both those statements. And I know Christina has another meeting to go to, so um, <clears throat> we'll just finish the podcast up with Lisa and Marissa. And thank you. Christina, for the time. You bet. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to, to connect with you guys today, and, and I'm looking forward to helping anybody in the association with N4A or, you know, across different divisions in, in any way that's needed. So thanks again. My pleasure. So for just three more questions for Lisa and Marissa. Um, the first one is, just really simple or maybe harder pieces of advice. What are three pieces of advice that you would like to share with others to make conducting research efficient and impactful? Well, I may have a few more than three, but they're all brief, I promise. Uh, one thing is, just to keep up with the literature, as more stuff is coming out in publication on student athlete development, on the professionals in this field, just read about it and discuss it as a staff. Maybe have a one month or one article a month to discuss as a staff at a meeting. I think another piece of advice is to collaborate. Clearly, it has benefited me to grow my brain by knowing Marissa and Christina and a lot of other amazing people like Ryan Westman uh, who um, challenge us to think critically about these topics and be better and then create models for others. And then as a person in the field trying to figure this out, consider what you actually need and look at what is not out there and what can you contribute to make you know, your program better, and then also the programs of others that look to what you've accomplished in your assessment. And then my last advice is to ask for help. If you don't know how to do something, there's a lot of people who want to work with you or answer the questions. I know all of us would. I know the research committee at N4A would, any of those members, and there's over 100. There's a lot of people who are willing to work together to make sure that we can kind of improve and accelerate this area. It's just going to get better and better as there's more experts, more specialty areas in student-athlete development. And so this is an exciting time to start doing this work. So my advice is to do all those things, work together, read, collaborate, 
and figure out what you can add. Nothing to add. That was awesome. Okay. Yeah. And um, the next one is if you could conduct a study on one thing that you haven't researched so far, what would it be and why? Well, <laughs> I have a long list. That's not just one thing, but I'll just throw out one of them that I think would be interesting. And that is the impact of coaching changes on student athletes' academic performance. Mm. That would be really interesting. Love that. That would. I'll throw out just one that ties back to like one of my main goals, which is looking at performance shifts over time um, based on pragmatic implementation and a type of um, curriculum that you're um, working through with your students. Awesome. Both of those topics are great. Um, and before the last one, this is an easy question, is uh, where can people connect with you on social media and find the research that you've conducted so far? Um, I am on Twitter, at Dr. Lisa Rubin, and uh, my research can be found, um, I have a Google Scholar page, so if you search Google Scholar for my name, I have like a profile that has every publication that's easy, and a lot of them are open access, so you can just click and get to them, and if not, it should take people to their campus libraries if they're on a campus computer and they can access some of those articles through there. And uh, the book that Christina and I worked on was Jeff Mamoreau. That is available through Rutledge Publications. I encourage people to ask their library to order it so they don't have to buy it. And then they can have it as a free resource for them or their students. And I'm on Twitter as well, Dr. Maris Nichols. So just drop the A. Unfortunately, there's a character count limit. And on YouTube as well, Marissa Nichols, PhD, and then LinkedIn. And I have, um, I certainly don't have anywhere near the extensive uh, research article repertoire that my colleagues have. In fact, my um, first publication came out this summer um, in the Journal of Issues for Intercollegiate Athletics. Much, to, much thanks to Lisa's support through that process. I have a completely new admiration and respect for the publication process. Um, and so that's linked up through my LinkedIn as well. And I also have, you know, have to give kudos to Marissa because she, you know, really put herself out there. And while she's working full time as a as an administrator, doing that kind of work is very challenging. Kind of putting together a manuscript for publication. Um, another way to to find work, I have a website, www.drlisarubin.com. And it has a lot of information on research and other activities I'm doing, too. Awesome. Yeah, so the audience out there, make sure that you guys connect with these individuals so that you can learn more about their craft and how to build a better program based off of data. Uh, the final question, since this is a podcast on how to live with virtue, is what's your definition of virtue? Now, before I ask this question, or before I let you guys answer it, um, my my answer is values that inspire the readiness to transform one's own understanding of excellence. It's just part of my personal moniker that I developed the past 
two years. So what is your guys' own definition of virtue, and, and how do you go about living it out? I would say two things. One is doing what is right, even when it is challenging the norm. And the other is learning never goes out of style. And that's a motto I live by because I don't know all the answers. I'm still learning, and I don't need to go get a degree or certificate to continue learning. So being open to learning new things to make myself better, and then in that case, I can then improve helping practitioners and students achieve their best. I, I would say my definition would be, or one of them at least, is meaningful work conducted through high standards, um, systematic processes, and meaningful collaboration with others. And I also subscribe to the belief that Lisa shared of just being a lifelong learner and um, always growing from every experience and having the humility to look within even when it's hard and, and finding clarity. Those are great. Well, I, I want to thank you guys for being on the show and, you know, being, as you guys just mentioned, lifelong learners by being trendsetters within this field with backing up um, practical research that people can really delve into. I think it's really important. I think you guys do a great job. So once again, thank you guys for being on the show. Once again, guys, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Jack of All Trades podcast, where it's my goal to bring you guys value so that you can have a greater impact on the student athletes, coaches, and staff at your own respective universities. And until next time, continue to live a life full of virtue.